Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy, lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this, at a distance of roughly 92 million miles, is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet, whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive, that they still think Aluran combos are a pretty neat idea. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Mind Sculptors podcast. I am your host, Callahan. On today's episode, Spleenface and I will be discussing ad nauseum decks, the history behind them, and what archetypes have formed around the card. Before we dive into that, however, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons for all the support you get. Your support goes towards continuing this show here, as well as events like the MLC. Few of our other bonuses for our patrons is access to the uncut video episodes of the podcasts, as well as you can submit a question for our newest show segment, Dear Sculpty Boys. We have a couple of those uh, actually set up as show up episodes, so go ahead and get in on that action. So if you want to join our Sculpty family, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the mind sculptors and you can find more information there. It's time to check in on our Apple podcast ratings. And this week we have four new ratings. Our first one comes from underdog eight, two, seven, four, which is a five star rating that says nice. This podcast is the equivalent to resolving a silence when you have the win in hand. Our next review comes from straight to Evan with five stars and two thumbs up. Incredible depth of knowledge. The conversation with Thraben Yu is an excellent overlap and share of knowledge and theory between the two formats represented. Our third review comes from Dugrassi. Dugrassi. I can't say that name very well, but I'm giving it the best I can. Uh, and it says it's the bee's knees. Five stars. Bees are in wheelchairs because this podcast is so good. Uh, we're not trying to put bees in wheelchairs, but I'm glad that you think we're really good. And our final review uh, comes from Yay2727. Great podcast. Five stars. Favorite CEDH podcast. Always entertaining and interesting. Thank you all for those ratings and a reminder that if you leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we will read that out on our show. With all that said, let's jump into my conversation with Spleen Face. It's actually, it's interesting. A lot of the knowledge like was available sort of five years ago or like a few years ago, but it's right. definitely like as CDH sort of exploded over like 20, 
20, I guess I would say. It's just like there's so much more stuff now that it's harder to like sift through and find. Well, and MTG MTG salvation going down was also a huge. Yeah. Like I remember I because I read the original like Bryant's pile of broken thread three or four years ago and now it's gone. I even like found the link and tracked it down and it was like, oh, this is just dead. But certainly from the beginning, Nas was a big thing. I did I did sort of a deep dive on or maybe like a medium dive on history. <laughs> um, so like Bryant's pile of broken was, I think, 2008. And that was a drow new deck that looks I, like today we would describe it as mid range. OK, <laughs> but at the time it was definitely like it wasn't it wouldn't have been mid range. The format was just so much slower. Right. And like it was on Nas and Necro, but it was also on like a bunch of really chunky stuff like Mind Over Matter. I want to say Tidespout Tyrant. Um, and you were typically oh, trying, trying to kill with like literal tendrils. Okay. So like it was definitely a storm deck. And then as through like the 20, like through like 2010, 2009, 2010, there were a bunch of things printed that made Hermit Druid good. Like you could win without it being like the actual worst. <laughs> Primarily like Necroticus was big uh, in Scars yeah. block. And then Labman plus Angel of Glory's Rise sort of. So I remember like when I first started playing Magic, which I guess would have been in 2012, everyone mm-hmm. sort of like no one I knew played or had even like had someone play it against it, but it was just like one of those things that everyone said that like five color Hermit Druid sign of the Earth Dragon Hermit Druid is the best deck. Yeah. Um, and I believe those decks typically were on Nas, though obviously not as like a primary plan. Their primary plan was Hermit Druid. The, so when we think about Nas, you know, you brought up uh, Brian's part. Bryant's pile of broken man. You brought that up in like the storm connotation that that deck has. And even though by today's standards, you'd look at that and be like, it's mid range deck. Maybe you disagree with this, but I would say in today's world. And I think this has been kind of consistent, at least in my experience with uh, CEDH is that Nas generally has been associated with like going fast in like a storm game plan. So to varying degrees, yes. Obviously, like it has been a perennial inclusion in fast decks, but there were definitely Mm -hmm. slower, like you wouldn't necessarily call them like a control deck, but certainly much more mid-rangey decks that played Nas. One of the things that's like, and we'll sort of get into this later, it's important to keep in mind is that like winning from a main phase Nas with like low mana hasn't always been particularly easy. And so there was a time when decks were primarily looking to end step Nas. And I think when you're primarily looking to end step Nas that you can sort of lean into that and it enables you to like to just play a slower deck, play a slightly chunkier curve and -hmm. understand that, you know, well, like nowadays you might think, oh, this Nas is going to draw me like 30-ish cards, including lands, and I'm going to try and win from one or two mana. Um, you'd go like, cool, my Nas is going to draw me 15 to 20 cards, uh, and I'm just going to win with five or six mana when I untap. And and so it hasn't always, there hasn't always been the same reward 
for trying to turbo out a Nas. Right. So it's kind of interesting as we head over into like that kind of brings us to, I guess, modern times, if you want to call it that. I think it's like there's like three main types of Nas decks in the turbo Nas shell in the mid-range ad Nas or the man decks and uh, farm decks. And, you know, obviously, I, I, I feel like turbo Nas is kind of self-explanatory, but for the people who need it, every, you know, need it spelled out for them. Morgan, how would you define a turbo Nas deck? So I would say that a turbo Nas deck is a deck that is focused around typically resolving an ad nauseum or some other big payoff spell as soon as possible. Uh, it's playing an incredibly high density of mana sources, including temporary mana sources, and it sacrifices card quality for speed, both in casting the Nas and in being able to win from your post Nas game state. So the hallmarks right. of things like Turbo Nas would be uh, a card like Rite of Flame, or or like Simeon Spirit Guide, and just some of the like some of the less good rituals that that you know don't don't do as much for you historically they've they've played blood pet even or or stuff like that but yeah just a very very I think high like density tinder wall is a yeah. really good example of like yeah an okay card yeah i guess like a lot of plus ones a lot of things that turn one colored mana into two colored mana which like are definitely a lot less good than either zero to ones like a Lotus Petal or or like obviously, you know, one to threes where I think like historically in a lot of decks, it was sort of understood that trading one card for one mana for one turn like just wasn't good enough. But in Turbo Nas, they've gotten enough tools that often they can get their win off like before people are actually set up to stop it. I guess I'd also say Turbo Nas focuses on um, <laughs> it's one. Of, it's that you know what what is defensive and what is offensive interaction. They focus on interaction that protects their wins as opposed to disrupting yeah. opponents' wins. And so decks that we kind of think of when we're talking about Turbo Nas, I think in the modern era there is no deck that really exemplifies it better than Rog Silas. Like, I feel like that is the Turbo Nas deck, if that makes sense. Like, as far as, like, being all in on the game plan. So, yes. However, there's an interesting quirk, and I think this will come up more when we talk about farm decks. There's an interesting sort of quirk where Rograx Silas, like, fits a lot of the bills that you're looking for for farm, but like critically misses on others. So I think like right. it could be argued to classify it as farm or like semi farm. And it really depends on sort of how stringent you want to be with your definition of, of farm. But we say more on that when we, when we get to farm, obviously. Right. So when we look at, you know, the other side of the coin, we go from going really fast to, Grinding as much as humanly possible with the mid-range ad nauseum decks, which we will be referring to as man from now on. And so man decks are, 
I mean, again, the name kind of implies what it does, right? Like, what what exactly are man decks? So a man deck uh, focuses on having higher card quality outside of Nas and isn't sort of focused around Nas as a primary game plan. So you'd be playing typically a slightly higher curve and a lower density of mana. You'd splash a bit more CMC for like big impactful hate bears. Like the the original Mandex were playing Alms Collector even, but like we, we might not go that far today. But you know you you definitely be looking to play things like your op agents, your notion thieves, maybe some more like controlling cards. Uh, Counterbalance is one that's like seen a decent amount of play more recently as like sort of a flexible you know you just sort of slam it and it's particularly rough trying to breach combo through it and then yeah so you're playing a lower density of rocks uh and you're just kind of using adnaz as like a big draw spell sometimes you just end step it and that wins you the game like you just draw 15 cards and you're like cool i'll neoform this dork into thoracle and and cast consult or change impact or whatever but also also you're fine just using it to sort of gas up and and playing sort of uh, a much higher card quality game, typically some form of card advantage in the command zone. Uh, and like you might even play some some beefier cards like a Wandering Archaic or Seedborn Muse if you're you know playing Thrasios, things like that. And then one of the decks that maybe everybody, not everybody will, they existed for a little while kind of went away and then I think one technically exists now which is He-Man which I had to play against all the time because Phoenix played it a lot and Snacks played it a lot and so I never did not see this deck for a very long period of time but it's a humility effective mid-range ad nauseum and so you know again what's kind of the gist with the He-Man build here. So humility has been sort of a holy grail in CDH for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Decks that can actually support it are very thin on the ground, but it's like incredible. It's been incredibly powerful against pretty much all of the premier win cons that we've seen, right? Like it, be, it stops Dockside, it stops Thoracal, it stops Labman back in the day, Hermit Druid, Hulk, Razaketh. Mm-hmm. Like it stops almost everything. Um, but obviously you have to, I mean, until the printing of planeswalkers as commanders, you sort of had to acknowledge that you didn't have a commander, um, which (laughs) meant that if you didn't have your humility, you were just kind of playing at a disadvantage. So there have been various attempts to sort of play it and accepting some amount of, uh, sort of internal inconsistency or internal tension, in like obviously when you're playing Timna, like slamming humility can just be really really sad. <laughs> like right. you play your Timna and you're like, cool, I'll draw extra cards, and then you're like, ah, and then I'll play this hate piece that shuts off my own value engine. Nice. <laughs> and yeah, so basically it was just people wanted to play humility, and He Man is a funny name, so they added effective so they could call it He Man. So like today, I think Tevish is shy is probably the only thing that would resemble that given, you know, it is a mid-range Adnaz list. It can play through humility. It plays humility. Fun, fun things with both of your commanders. One of them isn't a creature. The other one gets a bunch of counters that don't go away when humility comes out. 
it's definitely a deck that plays through humility a lot better than previous attempts had because like previous attempts were like you said like timna based decks a lot of times i felt like i saw it with like timna thrasios and that always felt like a like just giant non-bow yeah the, the printing of of tevesh definitely like breathe some life into that idea because you just have such a powerful game plan through humility. So, and and I bring that up mostly just because of the fact that like, I, I think that it fleshes out what we look at as, and what we think of as Nas, because, you know, a lot of times we have this idea in our head of what ad Nas decks are, and they've kind of taken on a lot of different shapes and have been tried in different shells. And I think, he-Man's like a really good example of how Nas has manifested in a arguably stacksier way. I don't know that I would call it stacks, but I don't think I would call it know. a stacks deck. But yeah, there I, I have seen some stacks Nas builds. They're weird. And so finally, that brings us down here to farm decks. So let's define something here real quick with Nas, because we've seen the name this farm or that farm thrown around a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> Morgan, for those who might not know, what is a farm deck and what is kind of the, the, the qualification of being a farm deck? Okay. So I'll give the historical definition first, and then I'll you know talk about the ways that it might've been sort of expanded or stretched a little bit. The initial farm deck was a deck called Mad Farm, and that was Timna Bruce Tarl. And it had a few key aspects. First, it was playing a lot of really cheap creatures to synergize with Timna. This was like Hope of Giraper. It was one of the first decks to actually play Sarah Ascendant. It played Memnite too, didn't it? Uh, yeah, some builds even played like Memnite, things like Blood Pet. Uh, Children of Corliss. Yeah, so it played a bunch of cheap creatures, which did a few things. First, it meant that you had an incredibly low average CMC. Like, I think the original list, the average cost of an online card was, like, around 1.5. And at the time, you were, like, like mid-range Nostex were trying to be under 2. And, like, like 1.8 was, like, generally considered pretty low. They also, obviously, they synergized with Timna, as I said. And then the last thing that they did was you played a bunch of payoffs for having creatures in play. So this is cards like Culling the Weak, Diabolic Intent, Infernal Plunge, uh, that sort of thing. So you had like an extra density of fast mana. And so it was a, a deck that, keep in mind that this is like pre-Dockside, pre-Breach. So a deck that could relatively consistently just straight up win from no mana off a main phase Nas was like unheard of at the time. Like that was right. a completely new concept. What was the back in when it was mad, the original mad farm before Jessica comes around. What, what was the original win condition? I forget. Was it fishbowl or uh, they, I believe they played fishbowl. They played, I want to say a uh, dual caster twin flame. Okay. Also, um, for 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 people who are for aren't who might not know what fishbowl is, we're talking about either Flux Reservoir. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a slime. I just That's, realized I was like, yep. <laughs> Fish either Flux Reservoir hasn't seen play in like two and a half years, and so I just realized that there might be some of our audience yeah. might not know what fishbowl is. <laughs> yeah. So like this was a deck where like you could just slam Adnaz in the main phase. 
Uh, this was also a deck that was just casting things like Grand Abolisher that typically like it was in Hulk piles and things like that, but people weren't just sort of playing it to play it. Right. Plus, like, you know, you had your your pyroblasts, silence. And then so that was uh, made by River, River May Cry. Uh, and then Leptis made Bad Farm, uh, which is something of a joke, which was um, <laughs> Timna Ikra, which I think <laughs> wound up playing Squirrelcraft at one point. Oh, 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 sorry. The other thing that Mad Farm played was it did it did like Schrodinger's cat stuff. It did Leon and Relic Warder animate dead shenanigans. That's right. That's uh, I right. didn't set them up with Razaketh typically because you didn't want to play Razaketh because you're trying to keep that curve down. It didn't play World Gorger yet, right? Like that. I don't believe it had. I don't think so. No, because like it, it didn't, didn't have a payoff. I want to say there were there was a list that played. There, there were like a few different variants that played a few different win cons. Right. And I think the main list itself like even swapped win cons over time. So so the idea was you were playing a super low curve Timna, a bunch of evasive dongers, and all in on Nas was the idea. Nowadays, the definition has sort of been stretched. So uh, I I have a a meme of a- adding culling the week to a Nas deck. Is this farm? Um, <laughs> because like, you know how exactly how much uh, sort of payoff for that is needed has has sort of shifted over time. People have have called you know have called decks that have like maybe other payoffs for that sort of thing. Like like a Corvold could be considered a farm deck, even though it's obviously not playing Timna. Uh, and this was why I said that like Rograk was in a weird spot because obviously it's not playing Timna, which I think mm-hmm. if you were being like a purist, you would say you need like some sort of payoff for combat from your creatures. Oh, the other thing I forgot to mention was that the first two farm decks, Bruce and Ikra, both gained a lot of life. Um, so often your plan was like to Nas from 50 to make it easier because like, as I said, it was hard to win with Nas. Right. But... Yeah, so like uh, you could consider like Corvold to be farm. Rograk is in a weird spot because like Rograk is your creature or like the creature that you play to play all the creature payoff spells without having to put all the other creatures in your deck. Right, like so so a Rograk deck is like, cool, well, I can play Springleaf Drum. I could play Culling the Weak, Diabolic Intent. You know, like I just have Sack Fodder for these. And so I don't have to put like my Hope of Giraper and my Memnite and whatever in my deck which is great and like that is one of the things that is that is farm so if you were really willing to stretch the definition you might consider rograk turbonaz to be a farm deck uh, i personally don't i would say i could stretch the definition but only so far like i would say you probably need some sort of advantage in the command zone so like conceivably a rafine deck that played like a bunch of really small things and and like rituals, like you could consider that a farm deck or like, as I said, right. Corvold, where like a bunch of the small things sacrifice themselves for like marginal benefits. But in Corvold, that's also drawing you a card could have could be considered like in like a medium stringent definition. Those could be farm. I, I mean, I definitely think that makes a lot more sense than something like, I don't know, I've seen it put in front of a lot of silly stuff. I think it makes a lot more sense than like Rog Silas does. You know, for sure. Yeah, it definitely it definitely sort of it it ticks one box and then it like half ticks the other box rather than just not (laughs) ticking it at all. Right. Funnily enough, probably the most common farm deck 
uh, I would say just straight up isn't a farm deck, and that's blue farm. Like, it's just, it's not paying, like, I don't know, some variants are playing, like, some amount of the creature payoffs. It looks like the main list is still playing at Culling the Week, but they have uh, three one-drop creatures and then a few two-drop creatures that generally you don't want to be sacrificing. So what do you, what would you call Blue Farm if you were going to give it an accurate name? I would say, like, depending on how you tech the build, it's either Turbo Nas or, like, like, I don't know, I think it straddles the line between Turbo Nas. Like, maybe if you had a category that was just, like, regular Nas, where you were, like, mid-range <laughs> Nas. Mid-range Nas is specifically slow. Turbo Nas is specifically fast. And then everything else is just regular. <laughs> it might sort of fit in medium there. Medium Nas. It would, yeah, it would, like... <laughs> see, no, see, the problem is that medium means mid-range. And oh, that's right. We don't need to get into it on this, but mid-range... <laughs> like, in, in, in a thorical world, in a thorical world, mid-range is meaningless, so, like, Thoracle has completely erased the defin- the the boundary between, like, what is control and what is mid-range, at least in those, like, high-color decks. So, like, yeah, uh, Blue Farm's sort of hard to classify, uh, as is Cheese Rush, like, the Thrasios Vile list that we made for the, the Nexus Super League, where we sort of went, like, okay, we're going to build, like, just up to Turbo, but, like... We're going to keep out the worst cards and like still try and maintain some decent level of card quality. Like, I think we weren't playing like Rite of Flame and we were still playing like Notion Thief and and Op Agent, um, but we were still like and like Mana Dorks. But right. then we were playing Culling the Week. And so like that basically like the when we were building it, we were sort of like this is either like the fastest non turbo deck or like the <laughs> slowest turbo deck. And like, I think actually blue farm falls into kind of a similar spot where it right. has like some of the hallmarks of, of being a turbo deck, but then it also has like a pretty solid mid range plan just because Tim and Crom are so absurd. So, so for me, when I think of farm, I, I always feel maybe this is my own fucked up interpretation of it. But the way I look at farm decks is being like the middle ground between turbo Nas and mid-range Nas, where it can they can pivot into being one or the other at depending on what the game is requiring, if that makes sense, because they play the high density of creatures, because they have the Timna strategies, they can kind of play a more versatile game than just turbo Nas or playing mid-range ad Nas, right? Like, that's kind of how I view it. So, yes and no. The the big issue with at least the traditional definition of farm decks is that pretty much none of them are blue, which means that, like, having grindy or, like, having, you know, a card advantage engine that you just leave and play over several turns... And then you're just passing and not trying to win, like isn't really a strategy because you're not going to find the tools to stop other people from winning. Basically, the idea with the Timna is that it draws you into something that lets you try again, because if you don't play stacks and you're just waiting around in a Sans Blue deck, you're just going to die to probably Thoracle. Right. Right. Like, Like there's just so few tools to stop it. Like, if you're in Mardu especially, then Breach is also very difficult to interact with. Like, unless you're 
expressly putting like disenchant in your deck or wear tear, which I think a lot of people are reluctant to do. So I wouldn't necessarily say that they're any more flexible than Turbo Nod's decks. I think a lot of that comes down to whether or not they have blue in their color identity. So then like Malcolm Tinna definitely would fit that grindier. Yeah, I mean, I have seen builds that like I might have classified as Turbo Nod's, but mm-hmm. but yeah, definitely like it is a deck that could be built into a much more mid-rangey deck where you just your your primary plan is to slam your commanders, draw some cards, make some mana, play some creatures to draw more cards, and then accrue advantage until you cast your Nas, rather than sort of trying to get under people being able to stop you. So when you look at a deck, how many creatures do you tend to think that a farm deck is going to play? Because, I mean, just being honest, like I've seen people play decks that they call farm and they have like six creatures in them. And I'm like, I don't think you understand what farm means yeah i I would say it's probably like once you start dropping below like 10 i would say it's probably a pretty hard sell uh that your deck is farm you know it could vary from deck to deck i think the original ones were like pushing 20 yeah Uh, definitely definitely like bad farm was well bad farm kind of had to though because it was like in Abzan, so it had to play a lot. Yeah, but like even even now, the the all the Mad Farm lists are playing like like I think the lowest I'm seeing is sixteen main deck creatures. So that's like it's. I I guess I would say like it's somewhat similar to it's like the Mox Opal test of (laughs) like are you consistently going to be able to enable your culling, your diabolic intent, you know, and how many creatures do you need to make that happen? And I think the answer is often the same where like, if you want to be able to do it consistently, then like probably around 16. If you're only trying to do it like after a Nas, then maybe more like 12 or 13 is okay. Is like about where I would sort of pin that, which I actually didn't do this on purpose, but I just checked and Blue Farm only plays 11, which... There we go. Perfect. I excluded I excluded Blue Farm from my from my definition. Before we started recording, we were talking about kind of how and we mentioned this a little we kind of alluded to this a little bit at the beginning is how some of the new stuff, namely Thassa's Oracle, Dockside, have kind of eroded the boundaries between these three archetypes. So the two cards you mentioned are Dockside and Thoracle. I think the third card that probably has to be mentioned in that category is Underworld Breach. Yeah. And so in terms of Nas deck specifically, Dockside has done a lot to erode the definition of like Turbo Nas or Farm, where as we sort of alluded to in the definitions, you used to have to try pretty hard to just win from like pretty much no mana off a main phase Nas. Like that used to be very difficult or at least like it wasn't consistent, especially if you'd taken a bit of damage. And so decks were built with (laughs) with that in mind where either you were expecting to try and do it end step um, and then untap and have a bunch of mana or 
you put in like a lot of things to really enable going off quickly. Uh, with the printing of Dockside, it became a lot easier to just win off a of Nas, especially because Dockside turned some of the red rituals. Like it, it not only does it make a bunch of mana, it also like fixes colors, which means playing a card like Simeon Spirit Guide or Rite of Flame or Tinderwall is a lot better in that you don't like it used to be that you would often find yourself in a place where like, sure, you make your red red off a right of flame and then it's like, cool. Now what? Like, right. The the problem that you see with colorless mana now where like sometimes, you know, you have the Nas and then you're like, oh, crap. (laughs) I have like I have, you know, I drew I found like Mox Diamond and then Mana Vault. And so, like, if I use this Mox Diamond to play the Mana Vault, then I don't have any colored mana and I can't do anything. Like, that used to be the problem with cards like Rite of Flame and Simeon Spirit Guide, where, like, effectively they just made colorless. Uh, but Dockside, first of all, is, like, a big, big ritual and turns them, like, it color fixes you. And so that means that, you know, by throwing in, like, Dockside and then, like, two or three cards to help cast Dockside post Nas you can up the consistency on your main phase nozzles by a ton. And like, for example, like Najila, like obviously they're playing a bunch of red rituals just because they want to land Najila as early as possible. And then they also just let you pivot into Dockside post Nas. That's a, this is an interesting. I'm, I'm having this whole thought now of how like Najila has kind of turned into this like mid range, like a man deck almost. It feels like. Yeah, it definitely. It depends a bit on the build, but there are builds of, Najila that you might consider like Ponga's build specifically, right? Like yeah, and then yeah, Underworld Breach also made it like much easier to win off of Nas because like often just like tutor plus mana to cast it plus either LED or pedal just kind of gets you there, which is like a lot easier. That that turns things like a Nas that finds you like Dark Ritual Demonic Tutor and either a pedal or LED just gets you there, right? Even Thoracle, setting aside like Lab Man or, or Jace, Jesus Christ. Um, but even Thoracle, like blue, blue, black post Nas is like very awkward because there aren't a lot of cards that just make blue without mm-hmm. obviously Dockside being a notable exception. Like historically, people were playing like Frantic Search was a card that saw a lot of play because it just let yeah. you fix your mana. And that was so, so important. Uh, because your win cons were not the mana you could make off rituals. And again, Dockside just like pretty cleanly solves that problem as well. So those two in concert have really reduced the amount of effort required to consistently win main phase post Nas with low mana, which sort of means that turbo is like hard to classify now. Right. Um, the, the last thing I think to touch on here is sort of these decks that are harder to classify. And we touched on them a little bit. We've talked about blue farm. We've talked about Rograk where they kind of can fit in where it can wear a lot of hats. We talked about Corvold. Gitrog is a deck that I don't think generally people think of as an ad nauseum deck, but it is in fact an ad nauseum deck. It's definitely very much an ad nauseum deck. And it's like, it's, it's also in a weird space because like, it's almost like a turbo commander combo deck with like a mid-range ad nauseum backup plan, which is like kind of counterintuitive. Like generally ad nauseum isn't your primary plan unless you just kind of have it. But 
like it has a lot of the things that we might consider to be like turbo or farm in that, you know, it has like all those creature payoffs and a high density of creatures and you're calling mm-hmm. the weeks and things like that. But then it also like has such a powerful mid range grind engine in the form of its commander. So it just, yeah, it fits in like a weird, a weird space. Plus I believe temporarily the collaborative primer list was named clout farm. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, don't get to say anything wild about Gitrog. This oh, honest, are we doing honest, this again? Oh, no. We don't need any more Gitrog controversy. <laughs> uh, oh. uh, so the last the last thing then, obviously, so we've talked about Rograx Silas. We've talked about, but there's one deck that is kind of the really big book in the room. Cody and you know, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, but Cody is very like amorphous as far as what it is as a Nas deck. So, yeah, one thing that maybe we didn't touch on as much as we should have when we were talking about Turbo Nas is that they mm-hmm. also generally play a pretty high density of mana payoffs. So, mm-hmm. Nas, Necropotence to an extent, obviously, Pure, things like Citadel, uh, Wheels are a big one. Right. Just things that like they want to have a very high card velocity because they're making so much mana and also they just play like a ton of tutors. Cody is in kind of a weird spot because your commander just finds just finds the Adnaz like for free. So you sort of trade like Turbo Nas decks have typically traded a little bit of interaction for a higher number of payoffs and a higher amount of mana production. But Cody has just traded. It's traded actually like the slower mana production, like things like two mana rocks, uh, which you just don't play at all. And the payoffs, like almost all of the payoffs for like even more interaction and, and mana. I remember someone did an analysis of like a bunch of, they selected a bunch of decks off the database and classified all the cards in them. And the most interactive deck was like, I want to say it was like something Azorius or or maybe Mono Blue. Like it was some control deck where you're like, yeah, they're just playing a thousand counter spells. Some uh, bullshit, I would some say. Some bullshit, yeah. And then like the second, <laughs> the second most interactive deck out of like the 50 decks they analyzed was Cody, which was playing like 22 wow. pieces of... 22 pieces of interaction. And it, it, it's interesting because I, I remember specifically where I was sitting in Seattle when I said, oh, well, Cody, you know, the card quality is not that high. And you and Reed like gave me a 30 minute lecture on why I was wrong. <laughs> we'll never forget the spot in the room I was sitting in. But it, but it's interesting because it, it it feels like because you look at Cody as a list on the surface, right? And on the surface, you look at it and it's like, well, how good is this card? And is Claim the Firstborn really that good? And like explain some of where that interactivity comes from and what it what it's doing. Sure. So uh, the first thing is that you are in uh, five colors, which means you get access to like the tool set of quite literally everything, quite literally everything. <laughs> um, but in particular, there's a bunch of very like protective stuff in colors that aren't blue that you're Mm -hmm. typically 
looking to run. I would say like adding black doesn't give you access to much other than uh, decay and trophy. And then white like gives you silence and swords. But, you know, you get your blasts from red as well as SWAT. Right. In green, you get like you have like claim. Noxious, if you count that, it's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Autumn's Veil, Veil of Summer, where like basically any one mana spell is a combo with your commander. So right. you're just like, cool, I'll just play like all, all of them, them. <laughs> um, especially the ones that are like proactive interaction, like like Silence, Veil, Silence and the two Veils right. in particular are like when you see Cody untap and they make like five or six mana and then they cast a silence you're just like fuck oh. this sucks <laughs> because like you have to interact with that and then they're still gonna get their ad nos and cast it but yeah if you compare it to other nos decks the first thing is that you're not playing any two mana rocks no arcane signet or fell stone and certainly no you know talismans signets right. that sort of thing so you reclaim like depending on the deck somewhere from like four to six slots for that and then you're not playing like wheels or pier or things like that. So you just kind of reclaim a bunch of slots for that and you use that to just jam a few more rituals and a bit more interaction. I am probably the least qualified person in the world to really give deep analysis on what is and isn't ad nauseum because I tend to play the literal opposite of ad nauseum decks but like i look at this and i mean it's a bunch of interactive spells it's a bunch of pieces that play on the stack really well that layer really well i mean i i think that's interesting the misconception that it is not an interactive deck when it's actually absurdly interactive yeah there, there's definitely i think like in a lot of the discussion around Cody, people sort of didn't quite understand what the value proposition was. Because, like, I'm pretty sure if you just goldfish them, like, Rog Silas should be faster on average. Not by mm -hmm. a lot, but, like, Cody gets, like, almost no turn ones and not a ton of turn twos. But you get an insane number of turn threes and they're mm -hmm. often protected or even double protected is, like, not uncommon at all. And I think people, like, didn't exactly, maybe it was just the way, like, the way it was pitched, but I think people didn't quite sort of realize how consistently you could be protecting your wins. And so that made, like, for, like, a, an interesting option, I guess I would say, where, like, you have, like, all this interaction that you can use to go for protected wins, and then when you get staxed out, you still just wind up having, like, a ton of interaction so, like, Reed and I, when we went to Tier 1 Con, we both found, uh, I think, between the two of us in that entire tournament, we lost two games and drew two games. Like, mm -hmm. like it, it was absurdly easy when you just got staxed out to be like, all right, we're just going to draw this game now. Like, I'll just keep all this interaction and, like, stop other people from winning. Um, if I can't win, nobody can. Literally, though. <laughs> um, and I think that was actually, that was the biggest thing that we found was the advantage of the regular build over the untappers build was, like, specifically, you just had so much more. You, you weren't playing, like, all these dumb spells that untap Cody. So you just had so much more. Like, you had so many 
more ways of stopping people from winning when you got stopped at the cost of not having sort of the built-in protection when you went for your win. Because the way the untappers build works is you, like you're instead of just casting a random one mana spell to trigger Cody, you cast something that untaps him, you activate again, and then you get packed and the tutor. And so like you have like a, you have like a dozen ways of just untapping Cody that are designed to consistently find you that packed when you go off, which means people need another piece of interaction to stop you. But like if you right. just get proactively stopped, like either they just destroy Cody or someone plays a null rod or whatever, your card quality is just so much lower. That's so interesting. So all in all, when you're looking at like kind of to wrap things up, when you're looking at ad nauseum, like what is the big takeaway for you from all of this conversation? Because, you know, for me, this this is all about, you know, looking at these decks and trying to get an idea of how to play them better or to their fullest extent, if that makes sense, because of what is in the deck, how we classify them and how that kind of informs your play for you. What is your biggest takeaway of this like exercise of looking at them? Um, I, I think, I think it's like good to, to understand like having that understanding of your deck and sort of how its game plan is, is supposed to unfold, I think gives you a lot of, uh, it gives you a good baseline for like when you want to make changes or uh, like sometimes even just abandon the deck. I see a lot of decks that people have sort of thrown together and they look a little bit like they're built by an AI where like <laughs> none of the cards in a deck are like strictly wrong, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you wouldn't look at a deck and be like, oh, you know, it's like Grixis Nas. It's playing counterbalance. Like, that can't be right. You wouldn't say that. But like, you know, you see a deck that has like a counterbalance and maybe like a big, you know, it's got you got like a Grim Hireling and I don't know, Wandering Archaic even, or like, I don't know. The, I mean, Sire of Insanity is, that one's like just kind of a meme, but, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, you're playing stuff like that in the same list that you're also playing like, Blood Pet and Skirk Prospector and Rite of Flame. And I think that you're like, there's a, a decent amount of like internal tension between the idea of I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like slam out my win as fast as possible, often with like an early Nas, and the idea of like, I'm gonna play a bunch of mid rangey pieces that I can just kind of slam and carry me through the mid game. And so I think that like, understanding exactly what your goal is and I guess somewhat to a degree how that specifically relates to ad nauseum gives you some tools for like maybe evaluating if you're sort of at that intersection of like the worst of both worlds Um, Mm -hmm. and like it is possible you know you can also try and get the best of both worlds that was our goal with with cheese rush the thrash of vile list was like Okay, we're going to make this like as fast as we can without putting like literal garbage in our deck. <laughs> but I think sometimes people put the literal garbage in their deck and then also put a bunch of stuff that like is not conducive to going fast at all. And so I think like having a, an understanding of exactly what you're trying to accomplish can help you sort of figure out, okay, is this actually like like this card is good, but is it cohesive with my game plan? 
and then uh, that can just help you improve your deck building. That about wraps things up for us here this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and uh, really hope that this was a helpful episode for you guys and giving you guys some context and history behind the cards and the decks that we play here in this format. If you liked this episode or any of our other episodes, please make sure to rate the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you are listening on. If you are listening on YouTube, go ahead and hit the like and subscribe button and leave a comment down in the comment section as well. I also would like to thank our top tier patrons, Justin, Adam Hamden, David Snavely, Dionyches, Grady Goodenough, Jacob Turan, Jason Bialik, Matt Boehner, and Senior Coupon. If you too would like to support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Thank you again for joining us and from all of us here at the mind sculptors. I'm Callahan and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.